Boris Johnson's policy chief resigns over Jimmy Savile smear. Yeah, Manira Mertz is just gone. Oh, Manira Mertz oh, wow. just resigned. Yeah. That's huge. That's yeah, damn. It does seem like at least a lot of the news cycle was, was dominated by all of this this nonsense on Jimmy Savile, and that was pretty transparently used as, as a deflection tactic of sorts and just uh, we're... Ah, the old dead cat yes quite <laughs> yeah. welcome to the pin factory the adam smith institute's podcast my name is daniel pryor and i'm the head of research at the asi in this week's episode i'm joined by my co-host and director of strategy john mcdonald and our special guest for this week tony diver the political correspondent for the telegraph in this episode, we'll be discussing the Sue Gray update, the levelling up white paper and the benefits of the Brexit report. The highly anticipated Sue Gray report came out on Monday this week, stating that there were failures of leadership and judgment in Downing Street. However, due to the Met's investigation, the report only covered four parties and revealed little new information. In response, Johnson declared, I get it and I will fix it. I believe that was in the Commons, again, avoiding calls for his resignation. It's starting to look as though, at least from our side of things, PM is getting away with it and that Partygate may be starting to lose momentum. It's coming to you on this first, Tony. What new things did we learn, if in fact anything new, from the contents of this report or, or update, as it should be properly phrased? Yeah, there are a few bits and bobs, I think. We got uh, we got two new parties that we didn't know about that Sue Gray was investigating, or, or three parties on two different dates. So that's probably the best new piece of information we got. Uh, and, you know, that then, as these things do, set the lobby running and people are trying to find out what they are and who was at them. So we got a couple of stories out of that. We Most of the rest of what we got was kind of framing and argument from Sue Gray around what was going on at the time. So... Her view that there was leadership failures in in Downing Street, uh, that this stuff shouldn't have happened, although it sounds kind of obvious to us, like this is someone who has done the investigation and actually going on the record and saying, no, 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 this this shouldn't have happened. And we got we got a sort of timeline of everything that was there. What we didn't get was any of the kind of juicy detail that's been done in all the stories about it. So we didn't get suitcases of wine or, you know, Boris Johnson himself at the, the parties. He's not named, no one is named in this in this report. So kind of light on the real specific details, but mm-hmm. then perhaps I think actually probably slightly more than we were expecting on the top level stuff. Yeah, it's interesting. My next question was, was on, is this roughly what we should have expected? I can't remember who it was in the lobby. It might have been Sebastian Payne. Someone tweeted out an excellent flowchart of potential scenarios uh, just before the, the Sue Gray update was released of all the different ways that it could go. So this this is actually more than you would have thought in terms of substance. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we knew beforehand that the Met Police and Cabinet Office had had discussions about how much exactly they could say. And the feeling was that you can't really go into lots of detail on stuff the police is investigating. Met said there was a chance that could prejudice the investigation. So we weren't really, we were expecting it to be a bit of a boring document, to be honest with you. I mean, the fact that we got some new some details of new parties we didn't know about. And uh, and yeah, some of that slightly more colourful language was, was I think, yeah, a bonus. Of course, after the, the update was released, we saw Boris uh, take to the Commons. And John, I don't know if you watched that or not, but that rather lively session, to say the least, uh, and subsequent events, how, how have they affected your perception of the PM's position at the moment? Because, you know, plenty of people saying that, uh, estimating quite a high likelihood of him going in the context of this report is that 
your view or has that been your view? Have you changed your mind on whether it's likely that he'll go? I think it really depends on what mechanism you think uh, will be used for him to leave. So if you look at the kind of the letters of no confidence situation, we have a list of, I think, nine or 10 MPs who who have said on record that they've submitted letters of no confidence. Um, you obviously need a lot more than that. And the problem with the, the PM's performances at, at, uh, at PMQs uh, and other times is that neither he nor Keir Starmer really make consistent or, or sort of in-tune representations in those areas. So I think it was last Tuesday, or maybe it was this Tuesday, this Tuesday that uh, Keir Starmer actually managed to land some hits on the PM. And you'd think that follow-up at PMQs on Wednesday that he he might actually be able to continue with that with a bit of momentum. Then he sort of stumbled at that hurdle. And so what I think you see uh, among the Tory backbenchers in particular is that they're constantly wavering. There's not really much consistency as to whether or not they're really doubling down on, okay, it's time, we need to move on. Or actually sitting still and thinking, maybe it's on balance worth writing this out. It's quite, uh, we're recording this on Thursday and news has recently uh, today broken that Manira Mirza, the uh, policy chief uh, of, of uh, Boris and number 10 has just resigned specifically over those uh, those unsubstantiated i think comments i guess going on to the the report though there's there's something that a lot of people picked up on that i thought was was a little bit a little bit sus shall we say and it was this idea that one of the major concerns that was highlighted at least by by sue gray was this this culture of drinking at work amongst government staff Uh, and there was this focus on oh should we shouldn't we have used the garden and actually should people be drinking at work and stuff like that do you think that there's anything to that, Tony, or is that, to me, that just kind of strikes me as, as not really the issue at the heart of this whole Partygate scandal. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it depends what you think a drinking culture is. And there's also a bit of a difference here between doing it in lockdown and doing it mm. normally. And actually, um, myself and a colleague wrote a story about that. It was a sort of oral history of the Downing Street suitcase taking us back through mm. uh, various administrations where uh, where press officers had taken a suitcase up to the corner shop to buy some booze. And it sounds like basically having a drink on a Friday afternoon while you're finishing off sending lines to journalists, presumably, is what they're doing on a Friday afternoon before people go to the pub is something that's always gone on there. And maybe some people listening to this will think that that sounds a bit unusual for their own workplace. I think in Westminster, that that doesn't feel that unusual, really. Um, And, you know, people often go drinking out after work and you know, perhaps that doesn't feel too shocking. I mean, I think what the sort of damning part of it is, is that people were clearly using that as an excuse to have kind of what sounded like quite raucous, rowdy drinks, Mm -hmm. because there was no alternative, right? Because you couldn't have a glass of wine at your desk and then go to the pub because there was no pub because of lockdown. And so it sounds like reading between the lines of that report over the course of the pandemic, this reasonably low key drinking culture, if you can call it that, sort of evolved into something a lot more like a party. And so by the time we hit sort of second lockdown 2021, what's going on is actually pretty serious and kind of without anyone really noticing that that they're totally out of step with the rest of the country. As for using the garden, I mean, I don't know. I'm not a civil servant. I don't know how these things usually work. A point made by Sue Gray was that if you're going to book an area to use as a meeting space, as you would do booking a meeting room, then there should be an invitation. There should be invitations set out. There should be an agenda. You know, the whole thing should be done through the proper civil service process. And so the idea that there was just sort of free-flowing 
traffic in the garden, people wandering from mm. meeting to meeting, having cheese and wine, Prime Minister's wife and his son are sort of popping in and out, you know, clearly she's taking issue with that. Now, do, will members of the public have an issue with that? I suspect probably not. This does sound a bit like a civil service critique of the civil service to me. I think it's the it's the idea that people were having a, you know, a massive knees up is the thing which is really going to stick here. Um, and, and Downing Street have already said that they're going to do something about that in, in the briefing for lobby journalists this week, they said that there's already someone in Downing Street or the Cabinet Office working on putting together a policy for drinking in Whitehall departments. So it will be, looks like from now on, this sort of thing actually will be against the rules and it'll be a lot easier to discipline people for it. And you, you mentioned that the kind of public probably wouldn't be particularly concerned with the sort of civil service inner wranglings. And I guess on the, the broader question of public perceptions of Party Gate, now that it's been going on for, for for quite some time indeed, are you sensing a shift at all in the, the public mood when it comes to this? Because certainly on the outset, it did seem like there was, there was a, a lot of widespread outrage, I think, uh, for people who maybe wouldn't be as concerned with these sort of stories in general. But as the coverage has continued, there at least some polling that I've seen suggests that people are starting to think, ah, maybe there's been a bit too much reporting on, on this story, or perhaps it, it's being over-egged. I, I mean, I signed up to to YouGov uh, surveys and got one through yesterday asking that very question. You know, are you do you think that the amount of reporting on Partygate has been about right or too much or too little? Now, w- without um, without wanting to feed the the journalist industrial complex too much, Tony, do you think there's any truth to that, or is that something that's um, you, you think actually there's been the right amount of scrutiny, or maybe there needs to be more? Yeah, I mean, I think I think this kind of inevitably happens, doesn't it, with a scandal? Is that over time people become less and less interested in it, and there will always be an overlap where some people are still interested in reading about these stories, or journalists are still writing about them, and a lot of people have gone off it. And you know, this happened. This happens with every story. So fine, yes, maybe if there's no new if there's no new revelations about new stuff we didn't know that keeps people interested in this story if we're rehashing or you know going over then it probably does make sense that people are thinking that um one thing i would say though is that this story's kind of transition now in the the, the, the big original stories you know pippa Carrera's stories in the daily mirror about the christmas party which broke before christmas that felt kind of visceral and exciting because it was mm. she was reporting for the first time you know, the details of what was going on and who was there now the stories become kind of become what I think is almost boring, boring but important, which is actually what we're arguing about is whether or not one investigation is going to be published in full, and will that prejudice another investigation that the police are doing? And uh, you know, it becomes a bit more. It's all about like the process now, rather than about the facts of the story itself. And you know, people are not that interested in process stories on the whole. Um, and all of this arguing about Sue Gray just doesn't feel to me like it's going to cut through as well as the you know the image of someone bottle of wine in hand on Wilfred Johnson's swing in the Downing Street garden so yeah perhaps perhaps so if if the prime minister gets fined if he's personally liable criminally that I think will will reheat the story massively but until then what really is there to say as a, as a wise man once told me the worst thing about it often in the eyes of the British public is in fact that the hypocrisy and and the process stuff whilst as you say is important may not necessarily uh, be as good at attracting public attention uh, as some of those initial stories. Uh, well, I think with that, we should probably move on to uh, the second section of this podcast, which is looking at the levelling up white paper. If you thought the Sue Gray report was highly anticipated, we've been waiting for the levelling up white paper since May. The white paper includes plans for 20 new Boris boroughs, greater powers to regional mayors, and over £96 billion spent on infrastructure. 
Michael Gove says this will turbocharge growth in the North and the Midlands uh, and invest British money in British firms and British jobs. The term levelling up has been thrown around without any actual action since Boris came into power. And I suppose the question for the levelling up white paper now is, will it help the PM or will it just be another paper without substance? So, Tony, if I, if I start with you, what do you think says less? Uh, the Sue Gray report or this white paper? Which one is it? It's the Sue Gray report, I think. It's got to be. I think the levelling up white paper actually did have a, quite a lot of stuff in it. Now, plenty of that stuff had already been announced and there was no new money involved. But it did give us a kind of a pretty interesting framing on what the government's main priorities are going to be for the remainder of this parliament. Fine, you know, your backbenchers are going to say this is too little too late. But I don't know. I think I think people were perhaps a little bit harsh on the levelling up white paper. I thought it made for quite interesting reading. But, you know, they're not, I'm, I'm very boring. So perhaps that's... <laughs> <laughs> Our take on it was that it, it does set out some ambitious goals without so much in the way of how, how they'll actually be accomplished. Do you think the government is going to struggle with the weight of its own ambitions, perhaps? There's not that long left for them to accomplish some of these things. Well, I don't know. The thing is that the, the target, which is set for all of these 12 missions that Michael Gove set out this week, is actually 2030. It's not the end of this parliament. So we enter this slightly weird territory where the government is trying to set policy, not just for its own parliament, but for the rest of the decade. If another Conservative Party leader wins the next election for the Tories, or if the Tories lose it to Keir Starmer, yes. this stuff is just not binding, right? The whole purpose, the, you know, it's one of the main principles of parliamentary democracy, the parliament can't bind its successors. Yeah, sure, it's all very well for the government to set out these these targets, but you know, realistically, are people? Do you think then that it's sort of laying the groundwork for a for a twenty twenty four election campaign of okay, we had two years of the pandemic, we haven't had time to do the leveling up agenda in the way that we wanted to. Give us a bit more time, give us until at least twenty thirty, and then you'll see the results. Yeah, absolutely, and I think the public will probably forgive the Tories for that, won't they? Um, you know, every every voter that I've ever spoken to about the pandemic and the political response to it has said something along the lines of, well, it has been very difficult. Difficult and you know no one really knew about this virus but the government's done the best job they can so I think people are basically willing to give the government a bit of a free hit on coronavirus but yeah you're right I mean the scale of stuff that was announced in the 2019 manifesto of which this white paper is an extension cannot like just cannot be accomplished in two years which is what we've got left of this parliament um you know five years was going to be a stretch frankly yeah no definitely I mean something that, that kind of sticks out at me as well is when when we look through the kind of definitions of the 12 missions so they've, they've got increasing pay employment and productivity across the uk by 2030 but even at the moment we have the national insurance contributions rise coming in we have a cost of living crisis uh you know the tax burden is the highest it's really ever been is this actually like will they have to sort of reverse ferret on a lot of their policy positions to actually accomplish any of these goals i mean certainly when it comes to to growth and, and pay and productivity increases i think there is just a, a fundamental lack of focus over the past few years certainly on growth being a kind of top priority and you know you mentioned a few policies that seem to conflict with that but i, I don't just think it's these individual policies that, that don't really do much to help growth and this this kind of treasury mindset as we've talked about before being more concerned with the, the balancing the books than with pursuing growth I, I think that there's just a general lack of understanding or appreciation of the link between economic growth productivity growth and higher living standards better wages uh, in a way that that there certainly used to be now my my kind of take before actually reading the leveling up white paper when i looked at some of the the kind of language in the summary my eyebrows shot to the back of my head because personally i i don't tend to buy a lot of the, this kind of spatial or place-based narratives in general as a, a free marketeer i care about 
making individuals, families richer, uh, and you know, regardless of where they live. And the main focus should be on those on the lowest incomes, wherever they happen to live. But it does make sense, I think, when it comes to things like transport, infrastructure, investment. Obviously, you've got to have that that more place-based focus. And actually, as as you mentioned, I think in the intro, a lot of this spending is not new spending. Uh, so if you're someone who's concerned with kind of wasteful government projects or, you know, spending a, a billion on community cabbage patch fund or whatever the latest kind of named scheme is, this isn't actually as bad as as we might have expected. It seems like a lot of this funding has already been earmarked. And actually, as, as you said, Tony, a lot of this is narrative setting um, as opposed to a huge tranche of new policy proposals. Now, there is some new stuff in there and there's some, some actually quite good stuff in there when it comes to devolution uh, I think that some of that's quite positive we do need more investment in transport infrastructure uh, that, that isn't just HS2 uh, and when it comes to we, we've heard rumors at least and, and I think it's been expressed by Michael Gove that he's uh, fond of the idea of street votes and there seemed to be in this paper a, a nod to that idea and my kind of takeaway is you know, all of the stuff that might see, come across to free marketeers as quite bad uh, has already been announced and it's not that much new. But the stuff that is genuinely new is actually quite good. And if it happens, it would actually be a positive. Well, sounds to me like we're uh, we're trying to take the small blessings and, and run with those and be happy about those. I wanted to kind of come on to splitting the difference between different priorities because it seems to me that the, the government has this challenge of doing this sort of redistribution of growth project through the leveling up white paper and balancing that with you know more affluent Tory safe seats in the South. Do you, Tony or Dan, think that, that this is actually a, a needle that they can thread in holding together this coalition of voters with, with quite disparate sets of interest? Yeah. I, there was actually a letter in the Times this week that uh, I thought got exactly to this point, which is basically a Tory voter saying, look, I don't mind we're trying to make people richer and we're trying to help out people in the North, but this seems like a fundamentally unconservative way of doing it. And I think there are a lot of Tories who've got these sorts of concerns. I mean, look at Steve Baker this week. Uh, he, in response to it, said that this is basically a socialist project that the government is pushing through. I mean, he's probably he's probably on the same end of the spectrum as you guys, isn't he, politically? Broadly speaking, yeah. I think, I think that this regional thing is quite difficult. And Michael Gove was very careful to say, look, a lot of the problems faced by people who live in the sorts of seats like Cheshire and Amersham, uh, you know, potential Tory Lib Dem marginals that the government historically or the Tories have historically held. A lot of the problems caused in your life are caused by the fact that the South is massively overheated and the property market is too expensive and it's overcrowded and there's too much pressure on public services. And the solution to that, he says, is to have this Medici effect where you create <laughs> new Renaissance cities in, in Grimsby or wherever it is and draw in investment and, and you know, pe- people want people who want to move there and not just try and move to London, which the government seems to think is what's happening at the moment. And actually, if you do that, people in the South, their lives get better because, you know, no longer is are there just this flood of people from the North coming to live next door to them because... There's nothing for them up north. Now, you know, that seems to me as a slightly oversimplistic way of putting it, but that basically is the argument that Michael Gove made at the dispatch box yesterday that, you know, levelling up, levelling up one area is not levelling down another. Um, but, you know, will voters buy that? Fundamentally, this is about spending a lot of money in places where a lot of money has not previously been spent. And the upshot of that is less money is going to be spent on other areas. So, you know, <laughs> you can view it in a purely zero sum way if you want to. And some voters probably will. Yeah, I know that I gave quite an optimistic answer in, in, in my last answer on this white paper. But I do just want to emphasize that I think the fundamental underlying idea behind leveling up is just economically 
not true. Uh, the, the idea that you describe, uh, uh, Tony, uh, of, say, building new houses in the north um, and, and building a lot more new houses in the north through through government funding and whatnot. There's a reason why people want to move to the south, uh, and it's because of the sort of agglomeration effects of cities um, and just generally higher productivity levels. And obviously, you want to, to some extent, try and, and broaden that out so that productivity levels and, and wages are higher in all parts of the UK. I don't think anything, anyone has any kind of objection to that. But there's this kind of this central planning concept at the heart of it that you can almost create new clusters of, of growth in areas where they weren't before through coming in top down and, and changing things around and spending a bit of money here and there. And to me, that that idea just doesn't chime with basic economics and, and free markets and everything that Tories should be, I think, uh, more supportive of, you know, as Steve Baker, as you said, called it a kind of socialist project. Now, I think that if you want to, I think, accomplish the quite laudable goal of increasing wages, productivity, living standards across the UK, there are plenty of free market policies that can do that. Uh, we talk a lot about abolishing the factory tax and this idea of how corporate taxation has disproportionately benefited service industries to the detriment of manufacturing industries that tend to be more located in the north northeast of England. Uh, that's a perfectly sound free market policy that would significantly level up without this kind of micro level targeted interventions and you know building a, a new high street or town square here and all of this stuff. So I, I think that there is a way of making the leveling up narrative fit with consensus Tory economic thinking or what used to be consensus Tory economic thinking. It's just that that hasn't really been heard. I mean, there's been some acknowledgement of it. I think that in the white paper, there is an acknowledgement that you can't just create new clusters of growth and, and you should try and, and work with existing uh, areas where, where business is flourishing. But to me, it's it's still it still hasn't quite grasped what we really need to do in order to raise living standards for people across the country. I mean, I would say from, from my perspective, the, the big concern here is growth. So I think by 2024, we're looking at somewhere in between 1.6 and 1% growth. And I'm not entirely sure how much leveling up you'd be able to do with, a, with such a low growth rate. I don't think the government can sort of tax and spend its way to prosperity. And at the moment, it seems like their primary sort of policy solution or mechanism for things is to throw money at it. I think eventually it's sort of putting the cart before the horse. There's also this, it's a very basic objection, but there's is all of this new or, or pre-announced spending on various things actually good value for money. Uh, and National Audit Office, uh, perhaps not coincidentally, uh, released a report recently on what's already been spent on supporting local economic growth uh, from 2011 onwards, I think, and found that basically that money was not being spent on the basis of good evidence that it would have a positive impact. And it does seem like the, the kind of classic libertarian or free market story of politicians bunging out money to a local area so they can generate a positive headline, regardless of how much positive impact or how efficient that actually is as in comparison to alternatives. It does seem like that is at least partially true. So we do need to be careful that, you know, when we hear uh, £1.2 billion for X or, or £2.5 billion for Y, that we look into the details of it and make sure that actually this particular scheme is going to be a good or the best use of that money for accomplishing the objectives that it sets out. Yeah, I think, I mean, so far, if you look at the way a lot of this policy has worked, 
the government's created a pretty efficient mechanism for doing exactly what you've just described, Dan, this this mm. creating good headlines for the government in some places. A lot of these places that, you know, coincidentally, they're all trying to win back at the next election and red wall seats that they've, they've only just got. But the town, the way the Towns Fund and the Leveling Up Fund, which are two of the sort of flagship policies so far, are structured basically means that you sort of bid for some money for your local area uh, and you sort of have to give it some description of how you're going to use it, but you can basically say, well, yeah, we're going to make the high street nicer. We're going to put in some planters. We're going to, you know, rebuild the cinema or whatever it is. Uh, and then the government says, right, well, here you go. Here's, here's half a million pounds or here's 10 million pounds or whatever. So that, that, I mean, that's not a very centrally administered, um, way of spending that money, even though it's coming, you know, from a treasury central treasury fund. There, there is not a huge amount of oversight, I don't think, from the treasury on how this money does get spent when it goes there. Uh, but it does allow the local MP uh, to say, "Well, look what the government's doing for us, doing for me, and potentially helping me win my seat back in the next election." Yeah, I'm, I'm waiting for the the kind of HMG UK flag to be put on these sort of projects. I'm not, and maybe that's the case already, <laughs> just in the way that a lot of the EU local growth uh, spending was done. I'm, I'm quite surprised that the government hasn't done that. I, I'm, seems like an easy win in terms of trying to magnify <laughs> that PR effect. But hey ho, you'd think you'd think with Boris at the helm that they would be better at doing this. I mean, as as mayor of London, he was always very good at turning up to things and cutting a ribbon and. You know, literally getting stuck at a on the zip wire with his British flags, right? Yeah, I mean, maybe that's the next thing. In, instead of the UK flag, it will just be Boris's smiling just face. Boris's on all these face projects, flag, Boris, yeah. Boris, Boris, etc. Yeah. <laughs> it's a Rishi project, is it not? Is maybe that's it? <laughs> yeah, Rishi's doing his best to take credit for all of this stuff. I mean, I had one more question to ask both of you guys before we moved on to the next segment, which was. We hear quite a lot of debate from the sort of pro-Red Wall, new Tory coalition side of things, which is the argument that the Red Wall has a different set of priorities to, you know, traditional Southern Tory voters. And then from the sort of more free market fundamentalist side of things, we get this argument that actually everyone always wants the same thing. Fundamentally, they just want prosperity, you know, low taxes and a rising wage. Obviously, you might kind of assume our views on this on this sort of question. But Tony, I don't know if you kind of spend any time talking to Red Wall voters or, or kind of hear different noises coming out of those constituencies. Yeah, well, I don't know. I think this is perhaps where I slightly, slightly disagree with Dan's characterization from earlier on this, on the sort of geographical aspect of it. Because, I mean, I think when you go to a lot of these constituencies, the people's political priorities is basically not much attention has been paid to my town or to my life by the government over the last 20 years. Uh, and I would quite like to do that. And the Tories can make a compelling argument to me that with a Conservative government that is quite willing to allocate this funding to its political allies in Parliament, well, maybe we're more likely to get it with the Tories than we are with Labour. And actually, that's an argument being explicitly made by Tory politicians on the on the doorstep. It's like, you know, I'm mates with Boris and the Labour guy isn't. So better better elect me and I'll I'll be able to get that money for you. So I, I think that that basically a lot of it does basically come down to that. And um, these are people who don't necessarily want to move to London or the Southeast and aren't necessarily sort of Michael Gove's brain drain people, but people who are just going about their lives and think, well, you know, maybe I would like a nicer cinema or a better high street or some more businesses in this constituency. I, I guess my my question in response to that is do you think they'd be saying that if we'd had semi even semi-decent wage and productivity growth over the past 10 or 15 years it's possible that they would but my initial gut feeling when it comes to this is that 
a lot of of this dissatisfaction about not having been paid attention to is is at least related to the fact that we haven't seen prosperity being shared and uplifted around the country right it, i mean i'm sure you know that they link together and it's not one or the other but i feel like you can't tell that story of feeling left behind or or missed out by the government without including the fact that people's very simple economic conditions have not improved very much and are far lower than than they see in other areas of the country yeah yeah no i think i think that's interesting i mean what they would be saying if if life had been better over the last you know, a couple of decades is, is difficult to tell. But yeah, I, I see what you're saying. And obviously, all all growth and all, you know, economic outcomes are not driven by things that the Treasury do, right? They're driven by things that people and businesses do. And there's the uh, there's the quote for the podcast. Happy days. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, we can move on to yet another paper that the government has released, the Benefits of Brexit Report. Monday this week also saw the government publish its Benefits of Brexit document that aimed to explain how the UK has capitalised on leaving the EU. Uh, The theme here, at least from our end, seems to be a degree of vagueness with a distinct lack of measurable targets and not as much ambition as we'd perhaps hoped for. Uh, Open Europe, the think tank before the referendum, suggesting there's about £33 billion of red tape to be cut, the government focusing uh, in this document on £1 billion. So I guess um, to start things off, John, do you think it was kind of inevitable that this paper would be as anodyne as it was tempting to be all things to all people? Or in fact, we have an intra-ASI disagreement here and you thought it was a fantastic piece of work? <laughs> no, no, I think we're, we're much of the same mind, to be honest. Um, you know, to follow on from, from the conversation we just had uh, about the levelling up white paper, I think in some ways the benefits of Brexit paper is trying to be all things to all people without really succeeding and being committed to too much. I think there are some things in there that sort of hint at the right direction, whereas on other things there are sort of, well, I'll give you an example. The the commitment to sunset clauses, which are a good thing, right, is you, you want to have legislation that, that needs reviewing uh, every six months or so before you have it back in Parliament again or, or you, you sort of renew the legislation um, is a good way to keep over-regulation out of Parliament. But having said that, we're in the in the benefits of Brexit paper. The suggestion is that this is something that is just a recommendation for departments rather than a sort of ironclad commitment. And I think that's kind of the issue is that they're, they're trying to suggest that they will be resolute in their in their attempts to, to realise the benefits of Brexit without actually making any formal commitments. I imagine that some of this is, is a COVID parliamentary time issue because I, there arguably hasn't been enough focus on the deregulation agenda as part of the you know trying to be all things to all people problem that that you mentioned a uh, problem that is uh, pretty typical of all politics i imagine but <laughs> it, it does seem like you know previous to this we had the um tigger task force led by ian duncan smith if memory serves and that had some really good deregulatory recommendations in there, it's just that we haven't necessarily seen a lot of them enacted. I mean, you know, Freeport, something that the ASI has been discussing for time immemorial, does seem like they're starting to get off the ground now, but not in the, the with the kind of fanfare I think that we hope for, as well as the <laughs> focus on ensuring that there's there's quite a few of them. I mean, I think one of the problems uh, that, that the government is having here is that they have sort of priorities that that are 
a, a quite zero sum in some ways. So the removal of the one in, two out deregulatory regime came because of, then the Telegraph did a, did, a bit, did a big piece on it, came because of the commitment to net zero. And that for me is, is the big theme of the podcast this week is I think the government is removing room for maneuver with many of its different policy positions. I mean, to go back to the, the national insurance tax rise, they can't cut, well, they can't postpone or, or get rid of the new levy uh, to help with, say, the cost of living crisis, for example, even though that would make sense because they need to raise that extra revenue to fund uh, health and social care. And so they're, they're kind of running out of space to to really commit to one agenda or another. As I say, they're trying to fight too many battles on too many fronts, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, it, it does seem like that that childhood game where you're trying to push shapes into the correct holes and every time <laughs> you push one and another one pops out. I also think that this is slightly, uh, this is, I mean, that that story kind of encapsulates, right? This is slightly a story about the unintended consequences of what happens when you lose a minister and and the cabinet sort of slightly destabilizes. Um, I mean, yes, obviously, David Frost was not necessarily very pro net zero or didn't think the net zero should be the big priority. He is obviously Mr. Brexit. Um, now, there are some cabinet ministers who are in a similar mind to to David Frost, but you know, net zero is uh, off the back of COP twenty six. Net zero is something that Boris Johnson knows is going to be like one of the main things that his premiership is measured by. And so, you know, the, the sacrifice of the one in two out deregulation regime is you know is basically the price of that. I mean, the detail of why exactly that matters is or why exactly that is the case is quite complicated. But um, you know, this is ultimately a bit of a personality story, I think, as much as it is a story about the, the detail of that regulation. Yeah, and it's not as though there aren't enough ideas out there for where to deregulate. I mean, I mentioned the the Tigger uh, report from a while back, but just from various think tanks on, on the left and the right, there are some great ideas for post Brexit regulation, uh, deregulation. Bad error to make there. Uh, there are some <laughs> there are some great examples for post Brexit deregulation that just don't seem to be on the government's radar, or perhaps they're on the peripheries. I mean, we've talked for time immemorial about uh, liberalizing childcare, especially important for a cost of living crisis, a particularly good measure that seems to appeal to all sorts of different groups with different political interests and, and whatnot. We've spoken about things that maybe are slightly less populist when it comes to gene editing in recent times, some EU rules on vaping, the fact that there was a lot of stuff. I mean, this is an area, obviously, I, I focus on quite specifically but i find it so frustrating that for years before we even had the referendum there was a well if we leave the eu then we can make it easier for people to to switch to vapes and there was all this chat about it and then it seems to have fallen by the wayside where the optics of it are so clearly you know positive if you want to level up if you want to use the market to level up and address health disparities then what better way than throwing off EU rules that made it harder for people to to switch to something that didn't kill them as much, um, and that you know we we could talk for for days, I'm sure, about our, our list of, uh, of most wanted post Brexit deregulations. But I'll, I'll stop myself there. Yeah, I think when you say post Brexit deregulation, it sounds immediately to like your average voter as something very boring. But you're right, like there are mm. wins here to be had. I mean, look at the tampon tax stuff, uh, the trophy hunting. They're, I mean, you know, there are. Obviously, government regulation affects all, all parts of our life in one way or another. Uh, and there is loads of stuff here that the government could be doing, which which would probably make it more popular. Even if people don't necessarily attribute it to Brexit, they just know that it's stuff that 
you know, red tape that no longer applies to them or uh, a change in regulation that's made their life easier. Well, I think on that note, it's probably time to end this episode of the Pin Factory podcast by the Adam Smith Institute. My name is Daniel Pryor. I'm the head of research at the ASI, and it's an absolute pleasure to be joined by my co-host, John McDonald, our director of strategy and our special guest for this week, Tony Diver, the political correspondent for The Telegraph. If you like what you've heard, then please do like and subscribe to us on your chosen podcast provider, and we will see you next week for yet more banter analysis. Thanks for listening.